The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. So I'd like to take a look and share with you a couple of thoughts this morning uh, from the book of 2 Timothy. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. A couple of short verses. They go like this. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Would you join me in a quick prayer? Jesus, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Amen. So as you heard from my rather long introduction, uh, I have a background in the world of medicine. And one of the things I like to do whenever I speak in front of people is to show you places in Scripture uh, where and how the world of inside the human body can be applied to the way we live the Christian life. And so part of my time with you this morning, as a matter of fact, part of the sort of show-and-tell portion of this morning, is to show you a model of the human heart. So this is the human heart. Obviously, it's bigger than what our actual human heart is. If you ever heard people say that your heart is the size of your fist, they're about right. Your heart is about the size of your fist. So this is an exaggerated size. This is actually about the size of a cow heart. Now, the main job of the heart is to pump blood throughout the body. And within the body, and within the blood, there are several different types of blood cells. One of them is the red blood cells, whose job is to transport oxygen. One other one is the platelets, whose job is to form a scab when you skin your knee or when you injure yourself so you don't bleed to death. And then there are also the white blood cells. And the job of the white blood cells is to help fight disease. Its, help, its job is to help you detect uh, what is in your body that doesn't belong there, like, say, a bacteria or a virus or uh, any kind of mutation of a cell, to fight it, to literally take it out, to destroy it, and to take out the debris. So without you thinking about it, without you even knowing about it, inside of all of our bodies right now, we have a physiological, biological battle going on. You've heard of biological warfare, where there's actually biological warfare going inside all of us now. Now, similar to that, not only is there a biological and physiological battle going on inside of our bodies and inside this world, but there's also a spiritual battle that occurs outside of our bodies something that is similarly unseen. It's not a battle of arms and nations and oceans of these things that are seen, but rather it's of words and ideas and wills which are largely unseen. In this passage in 2 Timothy, Paul is comparing the Christian life and giving us three examples. That of an athlete, of a farmer, and of a soldier. 
Now, when I look at athletes, I see that athletes sharpen their talent and become stronger and more proficient at their game, and they're much more disciplined in their constant practice. A farmer similarly plants seeds, waters, fertilizes, waits, and waits and waits and struggles and prays until the seed sprouts and finally a fruit emerges. And then lastly, in this particular passage, Paul is talking about the Christian life as that of a soldier fighting the forces of darkness. Indeed, we know when we look at this passage in, in Ephesians 6 uh, as well, we see that it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Indeed, the attitude and the mindset of being a soldier is part, a big part of who a Christian is. This example of a soldier would have been familiar to Paul and to Paul's world, where growing up on the frontier of the Roman Empire and being arrested by Roman soldiers, Paul would have been intimately aware of the world of Roman soldiers. They marched 20 to 25 miles a day and carried 50 miles of kit on their back. They built a camp at night, and in the morning they would burn it down before they left and rebuild it the next night. And when they weren't in battle, they practiced for battle. And they weren't practicing for battle, they were building roads and public buildings. Roman soldiers were, were multi-talented. They, they threw javelins, they used short swords, but they could also swim across rivers and climb walls and shoot arrows and ride horses and operate the machinery. And we see that a good soldier is multi-talented and doesn't quit when he faces a difficult situation. So there are three observations in this passage. First, Christians are called to live with endurance. Verse 3 says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. John Calvin, in one of his sermons, asked his congregation, have you thrown away your spear? By that he was asking his congregation, have you neutralized your witness? Have you become less bold in living for Christ? Are you one of those believers who's made a great show of valor, but now are more concerned with comfort and convenience and safety? He says, Calvin says, that if you have, you've thrown your spear away, that you are living only for comfort. Proverbs 24.10 says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. By saying that the Lord is not asking you to represent the Prince of Peace by wounding your friends or abusing the lost. We see that the Old Testament is full of examples of soldiers and warriors. There's the example of Gideon. There's the example of Joshua, of Samson, of Elijah, who alone stood and faced the 450 priests of Baal of Daniel, who didn't compromise his values in front of the powers of his day. We see Queen Esther, who stood in front of the king and spoke truth to power. Paul uses these metaphors of fighting and warring and soldiering to call Timothy, and indeed every authentic Christian, to exercise the qualities of a soldier who is at war. Paul loved this metaphor. This is not the only place where we see this. He told Timothy to fight the good fight in 1 Timothy 1. He 
called Archippus, who hosted a church in his own home, a fellow soldier. And in Philemon 2, he called Epaphroditus, the messenger to the church in Philippi, a fellow soldier. Paul used, as many of you know, each article of a soldier's armament as a lesson for spiritual warfare, what we call collectively the armor of God. As a matter of fact, our brothers and sisters in the Salvation Army use this to great effect when they talk about how it is that they witness to the community and evangelize for Christ. Adopting a very strict military hierarchy within their own leadership, it is said that when a person, an officer in the Salvation Army, dies and goes to heaven, they do not just pass away, but for them they are promoted to glory. The imaging of soldiering paints a passionate picture for each believer to pursue. It causes us to ask, what does our Lord want from us? Not only obedience to keep his orders and deep loyalty and discipline, but boldly speaking out in defense of the truth, even when it is inconvenient, even when it hurts. These qualities should characterize each one of Christ's servants, reminding you that the path of devotion to Christ is neither easy nor instant. It is long and difficult, but mature and effective Christian life requires steadfast endurance and abiding faith. This passage and others like it also identify who the enemy is. 1 Peter 5.8, which many of you may know, is be mindful and aware. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Now, that word devour is very interesting. It sounds almost uh, benign to me in the English language, but when I read uh, this passage in the Hindi Bible, the way it translates back into English is seeking who he may literally rip apart and eat. The word is very descriptive. Indeed, for Christians... It is essential for us to shed what many people hold as a, a fortress mentality. It's easy for individuals to hide in churches, in their communities, and indeed in Christian universities, and forget that they need to and are called to, indeed are commanded to engage the world, to speak truth to untruth, to speak purity to impurity to speak light into darkness, to speak relief into pain, to speak goodness into evil. Not just amongst ourselves, but in public discourse, in the crafting of policy, in our interactions with others. Yes, even if we find it in the church and even in social media. A soldier in warfare demands courage, commitment, and sacrifice. Paul says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He's saying to Timothy, he's saying to us, join me in suffering, join me in obedience, join me in unfaltering loyalty, in sacrifice and discipline. And Paul says that this is not only to suffer, but to suffer hardship with me. Paul is indeed asking us not to do anything that he hasn't already been doing. Indeed, when Paul is writing this, this passage, when Paul is writing 2 Timothy, we largely believe that his last letter, that he is writing this chained to a Roman soldier, that he's awaiting the execution of his death sentence. 
he knows he's not going to live very much longer on this earth, and he's giving Timothy, whom he has mentored throughout his ministry, a guide to help the church continue in the next generation. Indeed, if we do not follow these instructions, as is often said, the church is always ever one generation away from extinction. Satan will put up roadblocks and initiate rejections. And Paul says, don't run from this battle. Don't abandon your post. Don't start living like the civilian, but fight the good fight. Second, Paul says, do, Paul says to live without entanglements. Believers must distinctly live apart from the normal affairs of this world. Soldiers don't have it all and can't do what everyone else is doing, nor can they love the world. In fact, in James 4.4, there's some very vivid language in which it is written, You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? In Christ you are called to die to self and your wants, and embracing his will and his wants. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. An ordinary citizen is a free agent, can make his own decisions and use time as he or she desires. But a soldier cannot entangle himself or herself in anything that might interfere with his duty. In fact, as Christians, we're called not to just merely give and give over and over, but over and above. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't merely teach or mentor or befriend or train or learn or demonstrate. We are called to invest in each other. Timothy himself has been rescued by Christ and forgiven by Christ and transformed by Christ and belongs to Christ. And like you, Timothy has a special place to be on duty. Here's what Paul is saying. Are you preoccupied with anything else other than Christ? Are you pursuing anything or anyone else? Because a soldier does not get bogged down in any distraction. An example that I give to my students, especially in preparation for their final examinations, is to remind them of the image of a horse. If you've got a racehorse, a racehorse always has blinders on. And the reason for those blinders is to make sure that the horse stays focused on his goal, so that he's not distracted by anything to his left or to his right. As Christians, we are, we are told, we are called to fight the good fight of faith with our single-mindedness towards our goal. And lastly, third, good soldiers seek to please the one who enlisted him. And I believe this is the key, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. As a soldier has a genuine desire to enlist, to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier, it should be the Christian's deepest desire to please Jesus Christ, his commander-in-chief, his general, his savior, his substitution, his atonement, the one who enlisted him. Those who call themselves Christians have three options in human behavior, you can either, to whom to please. You can either please yourself, you can please others, or you can please God. And 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Those who call themselves Christians but 
live to please themselves only are in trouble. Pleasing self over God is a bad marker. It's a sign of self-deception and a phony faith. But Christians do battle with being human pleasers. Many Christians succumb to that temptation. But if we are faithful to God's calling, we cannot fail. For of the many images of our Savior, not only is he a general, he's also the good shepherd. And let me tell you a story to close out our time together. So at the beginning of the summer, I had my entire summer planned out as to what I was going to do. Some of it involved the beach, some of it involved the mountains, none of it involved work. And I was approached by a friend of mine uh, who uh, is currently serving as a medical missionary in India. And he said, you know, this thing called COVID is really serious in India. We have had a difficult season. And it's true, they had in the springtime. But in the summertime, their move had gone towards immunizations and helping prevention measures. So he said, our doctors and nurses in our tiny mission hospital are so overwhelmed, we don't have time to see our own patients because we're up in the Himalayas treating and doing other preventive medicine. Would you be willing to come and help us run this hospital for a couple of weeks to give our medical staff a break? And I thought about it. I said, Lord, this is not what I planned this summer. Remember, we talked about the beach. We talked about the mountains. We talked about no work. Why, Lord? So... Um, I prayed about it, and I, and I felt led to go. So for four weeks, at the end of July and the beginning of August, before the beginning of the semester, I was uh, ensconced about 8,500 feet above sea level in the Himalayas, about 50 miles from the border with Tibet, running a hospital. And while I was there, I was there over the course of two Sundays, and while I was there, I was uh, asked to preach in two different churches on, those, on that particular, one particular Sunday. And being the efficient person that I am, I said, well, you know, I'll just come up with one sermon and recycle it and preach it twice. Right? Once in the morning, once in the afternoon. They're two different congregations. Who's going to know the difference? So I went and I preached the morning sermon. It was all very well and good. Uh, it was, uh, and then in the afternoon, I went to a different church. Now, the morning church, a big, gothic, cathedral-esque kind of church, uh, very formal, very liturgical uh, the afternoon church was very much different. It was actually nothing larger than a thatched hut in a village. There was no sound system. There was no praise team. They laughed and said they had the two-handed organ, which is what they say in India for clapping your hands, and as the only musical instruments. And I was uh, there, to, and I was preaching the same sermon. I preached on John 10, 11. I am the Good Shepherd uh, passage. And it didn't dawn on me until I was standing up there in front of people that the majority of the congregation I was preaching to were shepherds and themselves. And so they, I, I felt, well, this is interesting. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I did my thing. And then uh, while I was up there, as I was preaching, I could see from the back door there were a bunch of men who came in. They looked like they weren't really part of this church, like they were visitors and they looked like they had really mean expressions on their face. And uh, so they came in, they sat down, and they heard um, the rest of, uh, they were there for the rest of the service. At the end of the service, they came up and they uh, talked to me. 
And I sat, actually, I sat down. And you got to remember, this was a Baptist church. I was not raised in the Baptist tradition. I sat down, and the deacon looks at me and says, what, no altar call? So I said, oh, okay, right. So I got back up and, and did the altar call, you know, on the cuff. And so I, I got up and I did the altar call, and these men came forward. I didn't expect anything to happen, but these men came forward. And uh, we prayed with them, we prayed the prayer of faith with them, and they came to faith in Christ. After, after this ser uh, service, talking to them, they said that um, they were instructed by their village chief that there was a foreigner, that is me, uh, from America who was converting Christians uh, in the Himalayas and that I needed to be stopped. Uh, so they had actually come to that uh, church that Sunday afternoon um, armed with daggers and spears to kill me. And I, said, and I said, well, why didn't you do it? I said, well, there were these huge white figures standing outside of the sanctuary. They wouldn't let us in. And it dawned on me that they may have seen angels guarding that sanctuary. And before I left uh, India, um, I had the chance to baptize these three men in the Ganges River. Um, I was totally ready to go and do something, to do one thing, and God led me there to do something totally different. Um, and beyond all patience, beyond all activities, that was the hallmark of my time there. So you see, to live bold in your faith is to make sure that you are doing God's will and pleasing God and not pleasing men. There are times, even in my life, as an immature Christian, that I've been faced with pleasing God and pleasing men, and I've made the wrong decision. And I enjoin you, I encourage you, I command you, under the mercies of God, please make the right decision. Because you do not face this battle alone. The Lord of hosts is with us. As a matter of fact, if you read what the definition of Lord of hosts is, and again, if I go back to my Hindi Bible and I read hosts, in Hindi it's actually translated as the Lord of armies. The Lord commands armies. We are his army. And our victory may be delayed, but it is never denied. Remember that if God is for you, he's more than a whole world against you. If God is for you, there's nothing that any man, any woman, any power, any principality, any entity can do to stop you from living for God. So as you go forward this week, I encourage you to be bold in your faith, to be strong, to uphold one another, and in your efforts, in your sufferings for Jesus, that you will glorify him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for giving us the chance to live boldly for you. Give us the strength, the encouragement, the conviction, and the wisdom, and the discernment to do so. May we glorify you and you alone in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.